This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. To be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. This is Pass the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23, follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, the angry black man, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, bro? You got me pegged. You got me pegged. <laughs> we mad today, huh? We starting off with that Baldwin quote? Yeah, man. We a little heated? We a little hot today? What's what's going on? I think there's reason to be. So let, let me give you context for this, this conversation for the listeners. I think it's important. So we were in H-Town recently, right? We were in Houston. And some of you guys may have heard at the AMA, we had this conversation with one of the attendees who had mentioned this idea of bitterness and resentment kind of growing towards white people as he kind of dives deeper in. And, you know, how do I deal with that? How do I manage it? And it was kind of almost from the standpoint of how do I maintain being a Christian and loving my neighbor and loving, frankly, my oppressor while also diving deep into personhood. And I thought it was such a great question. Shout out to Anthony for that question. Uh, it was a really, really good question and it helped us to kind of work through some things. And so we were like, man, why don't we make this a full episode? Because I think it's really important for us to dive in. And I think a lot of people would identify with Anthony's sentiment. So overall, he situated the question in Issa Rae's uh, comment at the award show when she said, I'm rooting for everybody black. And then he said that someone summarized that by saying, it's not that we hate y'all, it's that we love us, right? And he's like, but no, I feel like I hate them. <laughs> so, and I was appreciate, I appreciated him being real. And I think we don't talk about that enough. And we don't talk about how we handle our emotions in the midst of all this. And I can say, I think we both can actually say that there's been anger, there's been frustration, there's even been bitterness at times, a resentment. So I think we should talk about this, Jamar. I know you we mentioned some things in the AMA, but let's expand it a little bit. Um, are, are you feeling, are you angry? You mad? So unpopular opinion, I think. No, you got to answer my question before you give your up. Are you mad? That's the unpopular opinion. Okay. Bad, bad. I'm mad and I'm okay with it to an extent. Okay. Right? So what's making you mad? Like, let's dive into this, yo. Lean back on the couch, Jamar. Lean back on the couch. <laughs> so how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? In the therapist's office with Tyler Burns. Um, okay. So it may be a surprise to listeners to know that I am a student of history. And when I read history, the racism makes me mad. Let me give you an example. Most people haven't heard of this man named Clyde Kennard. Brilliant intellectually, was born in southern Mississippi, um, enrolled at the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. was on his way toward a degree. Mm -hmm. His mom gets sick back in Mississippi. He 
leaves the university to go back home and take care of his mom and help the family. He tries to enroll in what is now the University of Southern Mississippi. They reject him because they're segregationist. He keeps trying. The white powers that be basically decides this guy is a problem. How do we get rid of him? They plant a bag of chicken feed in his car and say he stole it. Wow. They send him to Parchman Farm, which is literally a plantation and a labor camp for convict leasing. Hmm. And so uh, they go and they work him and they work him and they work him. In the midst of this, he gets sick with cancer. Oh my goodness. He tells them, hey, I'm not feeling well. They won't let him see a doctor and they certainly won't let him take a break. And so one day he finally literally physically cannot get out of bed. He's just that sick. And they say, okay, you're actually sick. He goes to the hospital. Within a few days or weeks, he dies. To this day, the people who were wow. most responsible for that, not accountable. Wow. Not not held responsible for it. Okay, so so that is a harrowing story. You tell a lot of these stories in The Color Compromise, and you've mentioned some of them on the podcast as well. You know, when you when you study history and there's anger for that. And and I'm not trying to get like really deep and granular, but I think it's important to to ask this question. Where is that anger directed? Who are you mad with? Um, what are you mad at in particular? I mean Because I think we can all say, Oh, I'm mad, but like what's behind that? Right. Like where is I it mean, directed? It's as diverse as the the sources and the perpetuators of racism, right? So in that particular story, I'm mad at the Citizens Council, a group of mm-hmm. white power brokers in Mississippi who are a less overtly violent form of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. But they do violence, like what happened to Clyde Kennard. Um, I'm mad at white churches that somehow knew about these things, right? Um, the judge in the Emmett Till case who acquitted t- uh Kills Till's lynchers mm-hmm. was a member in good standing, maybe even an elder at his church. Hmm. Nobody hold, hold hold him accountable. Um, I'm mad at a white supremacist society hmm. that winks and nods at this, and the fact that somebody can do a racism and still be rich, still be powerful, hmm. still be famous, not a big deal. So it's diffuse, right? Right. Um, it's especially historically, it's hard to be mad at people who are dead. <laughs> right. And that's that's kind of my perspective is like, you know, how does it like where does that where does that actually go? But then it lands it, I'm angry at, at the apathy today. Black and white, right? It infuriates me to see black people thinking that racism isn't a big deal. Wait, wait, hold on. So 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 you mad at us now? I'm mad at People who are apathetic about racism. Hmm. And I'm saying it can be people of color or white people. Um, People who who don't know where we've come from Mm -hmm. and therefore think the problem is something that it isn't or is less than it is. Um, Certainly white people, in particular white Christians, who don't understand how racism is defined or how it operates today and show very little interest in the concerns of black people. Hmm. No, this is fascinating. So I think I'm with you. I don't have the breadth of historical knowledge and sources that you do. I think what makes me most mad in these conversations 
is um, a level of tactical ignorance, willful ignorance to almost manipulate people astray. So for me, it's less with the individuals and it's more of like the, the power brokers. So it's more with the pastors, the tastemakers, the gatekeepers, the theologians, the people who are exerting mass influence and who are kind of pushing people away or making people feel guilty about feeling things that I think are very Christian, very loving, very caring. Um, and I think, you know, kind of the second layer of that would be most mad at people I'm in relationship with that don't seem to get it or seem to buy into a narrative about me or what I do and suspend years of relationship in order to say I'm wrong when I know they ain't done the work. Hmm. You know, that's like a, that's like a real big problem for me. Um, I think the first time I felt it was, the first time I felt it was probably Duck Dynasty, the whole uh, <laughs> Duck Dynasty situation, right? Um, where I think it was Phil, Phil Robertson. Phil Robertson, yeah. He said, you know, he only saw happy blacks. And I just put something up like, you know, I mean, yeah, we talking about this, this and that. Or I feel like there was there was something that people were talking about. And I'm like, man, but this whole happy blacks situation, it's a problem. And, you know, this was, I think, pre Mike Brown, you know. Yeah, this is early. Uh, 2014. Yeah, early 2014. And some of the comments that I saw on my post, I was like, whoa, like, man, I mean, how do y'all get the right to comment on our experience and our perspective? Like, how do y'all get the right to wade in and then tell us what you agree and disagree with? And it wasn't based on anything. Early 2015. Yeah. Yeah. So this is right after Mike Brown. So, man, I mean, you know, people don't even... They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even know the categories that they're they're operating from, but they're just like, you know, strong and wrong. And so I, I think I felt it then because people were people kind of circled around Phil Robertson. And I was like, wait a minute. But, you know, me like you don't know this dude like this dude is just some some random reality TV show star. But, you know, me, I mean, we're a relationship. So I think those are those were two instances that were very frustrating for me. But what keeps you mad, I guess, right? Like, yes. so, like, how do you, how do, where do you go with that anger long term? Because for me, I kind of modulate it. So I modulate my expectations. Mm-hmm. So if you're mm-hmm. white and in a relationship mm-hmm. with me or friendship with me, you know, I, frankly, I mean, just being very honest, like, white people are going to white. Like, you know, so, I mean, you know, we would, we would say, you know, oh, I can't believe someone said this. I'm like, well he's a white like I don't know what to tell you like I mean I just I'm just modulating my expectations to know that I'm not going to expect anything from you and if you do something it's like oh okay wow well that's good I don't expect it to last so I think that's kind of a another form of like avoidance Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and resentment mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. now you're importing that expectation on people who may or may not you know come around but what keeps you mad yeah well the historian in me wants to get this right December 2013 is when it happened, but people are still writing about it in 2015. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, bad, um, bad. Anyway. Because I thought it was pre-Mike Brown, because I know it early. wasn't really, yes, you yes, know, hitting yes. the fan yet. That's right, that's right. Um, so, honestly, man, I don't feel mad all the time. Um, I think when 
I really stop to think about racism. Yes, it makes me mad. Right. But believe it or not, I'm not always thinking about racism. I'm trying to live my life, right? Uh, sometimes racism gets in the way of that, for sure. But I'm also thankful for community, close friends, family, who I trust, with whom race is not always the most salient issue. Right. 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 Like, so in those moments, I ain't thinking about it. And mm. I ain't mad, right? And I think there are ways to creatively channel your, your anger. Right. Look, we'll get into that. I, yes. I'm, but I'm like, man... I don't think I can maintain a perpetual state of anger. No, like it'll burn so you up. When when James Baldwin was talking about this, we read the Baldwin quote kind of at the top. You know, to be a Negro in this country, relatively conscious, being a you know constant state of rage, a rage all the time. I, you know, for me, I feel like that's so counterintuitive and counterproductive that I feel at times like I'm giving them power, and you know, I I think this is part of my perhaps my trauma avoidance. <laughs> like there's a part of me that says I probably should dive into that a little bit more and let that anger come and then enter in and press into it. Because I, I sense people, like even what you said, this whole idea of, man, I, I'm angry. I am. And I'm letting you know I'm angry. And I'm like, man, what good is that going to do? And it's like, well, that's what you actually feel at the time. So don't, edit that in the moment don't mute that but actually press into why and dive deeper into that so that you can get healed from that and that could actually be a moment of personal growth but i'm just thinking about all the things that have made me angry and mad and i think most of it kind of roots itself in betrayal yes yes that black anger is a lot about betrayal and a lot about helplessness so there's betrayal and then there's helplessness because i can't do anything about what i see like I can't actually go and change it. Like yep. there's no, there's no way for me to interrupt the system. Yep. And I can boycott and I can march and I can, you know, hold up picket signs and I can do all this. But the reality is I can't, like I can't actually stop the murder from happening. Mm. I can't actually stop the act of, act of brutality. Mm. And it frustrates me that there's a sense of helplessness. And so I think a lot of us feel this helplessness, but also this betrayal. Like, man, the people who we think are safe are not. Yeah, that's The huge. people who we think we have friendship with, they're not really our friends. They're turncoats in the end. Those are two for me. Would you say it's the same for you? Yeah. Or would you say it's just the like black death or black terror? Like those types you know, of things. I resonate a lot with that. And, and you, you said- a whole lot that we, we, we need to unpack and process. So, so one of the things is you were saying, don't edit your anger. And I think that is so crucial because in the Christian frame, in practice and in discipleship, we have basically these categories of positive and negative emotions, right? Like, so joy is positive. Um, you know, uh, the excitement you get in terms of praising God, that's, that's positive, but things like sadness or anger, are categorized as negative when the reality is they're simply part of the human experience, particularly in a world that's not perfect, right? Right. And so to pretend as if in the face of racism, both past and present, it doesn't make you angry is to diminish the human experience in the sense yeah. of not allowing 
your full. This is part of honestly being made in the image and likeness of God is having these emotions, having emotions. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because we're fallen and broken people, um, we can go overboard. Right. We can we can we can fall from righteous anger into bitterness. But there is such a thing as righteous anger, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where where you are. Uh, longing and panting for for justice. Yeah, like what is what makes anger righteous? Like I've been trying to dive into what that actually means. Yeah, and a part of me, I think a part of this is I'm afraid to call my anger righteous. Yeah, because I don't trust myself. Yeah, and because I feel like my experience is invalid as a black person in America <laughs> and a black Christian. So I think the roots of it are, well, I I don't feel like I have a right to be angry about this or to call it righteous anger because I mean, who am I? Yeah. And my experience. And so I think it's like years of conditioning within the evangelical environment, which would tell us that our experience overall is invalid. And then it would seek to, to edit the experience for us. Yeah. Almost like, man, have you seen that movie minority report? Yes. So the movie minority report when they're trying to, they're basically, it's the invention of pre-crime. It's like a Tom Cruise movie. And so what they do is they have these three, um, you know, aliens or, you know, people who can like predict crime, predict yes. a crime occurring before it happens, uh, specifically like a murder. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they kind of, you know, have this moment where they kind of wake up and they're cerebral. And so the, then the ball rolls down the hill mm-hmm. or ball rolls down the chute and they can like see it like, Oh, this person is going to be murdered and this person is going to commit the murder. Mm-hmm. And then what they're doing is they're like going in the lab and they like alter like the, the slides. Yeah. The video. Yeah. The video yep. slides of like what actually happened, yep, what somebody yep, is yep, thinking. Yep. And I feel like that's how white Christians like do with us. <laughs> like they go in and they're like, wait, wait a second. Oh, nope. Nope. Take this out. Take this out. Yes. And it's like this form of, of manipulative control. They flip it on you. Like and flip it and, and make it seem like, Oh, well you, you don't really believe this. Do you? Yes. Yeah. You don't really believe that. Do you? And I think that sort of betrayal is, the height of it and that's the height of where i think our anger should come from which is when someone is trying to invade our experience right and isn't that that's the tale of of whiteness in <laughs> whiteness as a contract Writ right large. it's like invasion and conquest so mm. we're gonna not just invade and conquest your lands mm-hmm. and your cities your body and your and your bodies but also your mind and yep. your experience yep. too absolutely and, and then to deem it invalid then to to alter history, to rewrite the record. Yeah. What happened to you isn't wrong or isn't that bad. And, and, and you definitely shouldn't be angry about it. Right. That goes against reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, for a long time, I had been guilted into not feeling angry. Yeah. Yeah. I had been guilted into saying that I forgave and forgot Mm which is a way of saying peace, peace when there is no peace, right? Right. right? When the offense is outrageous. Mm -hmm. These offenses are outrageous that black people get murdered by the people supposed to serve and protect them so frequently that, that, that where you are born in terms of your zip code can determine the quality of your life in so many ways. Yeah. These things are outrageous and these aren't historical, right? They're not, not 50, mm-hmm. 60, 100 years ago. This is happening right now. And then to be somehow guilt tripped into saying, well, if you're mad about that, then you're being sinful. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's so many ways for us to talk about how it plays itself out, but we have to take a quick break. And so um, stay tuned as we continue to talk about this idea of anger right here on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So we're back here on Pastor Mike talking about anger and betrayal. And, you know, you wanted, I think, to talk a little bit more about this idea of betrayal as well. I think that's where you were headed in your flow of thought before we we cut you off. Right. So number one, I think one of the things that's helped me process my anger is allowing myself to feel anger Mm -hmm. and not be guilted into some sort of denial of that particular emotion. But then you mentioned betrayal. And for me, that's been acute. Because there have been several instances of betrayal in the last few years, particularly focused around Black Lives Matter and Mm -hmm. the 2016 presidential election, where people who I thought had my back weren't there. Mm -hmm. And I've referenced a few times in conversation as I'm processing all of that. I felt like Uriah in the Bible, who was pushed to the front of the battle and is fighting alongside his fellow soldiers. And then all of a sudden he looks around, he's like, where is everybody? I'm out here all alone, fit to be killed. Right, right. And that's how it felt because you, you, I thought that I was sort of linking arms with Christian brothers and sisters in this battle for racial justice. And then I say something or I, I, I have a podcast and say something and or have a talk and say something and then... Uh, you know, the wrong people get a hold of it and sort of pile on and troll. And then all of a sudden, the people who you thought had your back or or, or your side, mm. they're not there because right. they're afraid of what's good. They're afraid of the pile on too, right? Yeah. And they withdraw and you're left all alone to fight these battles. And so, I mean, just real talk, um, there is a period of about three years where I really couldn't do local church ministry right? because of the church hurt that yeah. I had. And this, you're talking about a guy who spent five years earning an MDiv and at one point thought I was going to be a pastor or a church planter or something. And now I can't even get in the pulpit. Right. right. I can't even um, allow the, my, I, myself to entertain the idea of being any sort of leader, formal or informal in the church, because I got to deal with this pain and and process it. Mm. And that's okay. Right. Like, I think one of the things, that has helped me, and I'm by no means out of the woods per se, um, still processing a lot of this, is saying, I'm wounded. Mm-hmm. And in this state, I need to heal. Yeah, yeah. I'm not healthy right now. Yeah. And I can't lead. I can't, I can't really, you know, take a position at the front <clears throat> per se. I need to be ministered to. 
hmm. in this moment and allowing ourselves the space to ask for help, to feel our pain and to be ministered to by the body. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's also, you know, who gets to, who gets to hear and feel that pain, right? That's changed and shifted so much for me. It's, I don't, I'm not free with ex- expressing that pain as easily as I was before because I, I have trust issues. And yeah, you know, you mentioned this idea in the AMA about, you know, trusting and about people earning trust. And I think it hit us all very hard because it's one of those things where, you know, you're like, man, you have to earn my trust. I have to, I have to trust you. And, you know, I've been hurt before I've been wounded before, but, you know, to kind of flip on that. And I think, you know, kind of extend that a little bit further, I think it's important not to make our healing white centered. Amen. I think that's important. I think if we're going to be black centered and we're going to prioritize what God is doing in our lives and prioritize the black Christian experience and the marginalized, I think it's important for us not to make our healing white centered as well, not to make our healing centered on the offender. And I'm not healing so that we can be in relationship like we were before so that we can relive the good times that were probably better for you than they were for me. Mm -hmm. Real talk. I'm healing for me, not for you. And I think that's an important thing for us to take a step back on. There's a level of guilt that pushes us towards healing for the sake of the offender. And I want to make sure that my forgiveness is directed properly and that my bitterness and and resentment is dealt with, but that I'm not healing out of a motivation to get you back. I'm healing out of a motivation to get me back and to grow through this. That's good. And I, and, and even, even our healing can be misdirected. Hmm. Even our, even how we address our woundedness can be wrong. You know, what, why am I getting, you know, it's this whole kind of thing where, where people say, especially in relationships, they talk about relationships. They're like, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to, to find the right person, you need to be the right person. And I, I get the mentality, right? But the problem is you're trying to better yourself for something. You're trying to better yourself for something that may or may not come. Mm. You're trying to better yourself for someone else. Mm. It's still the same motivation. Well, I'm going to be the right person. Then the person going to see me. Right. It's no flourish for yourself. Yep. Flourish because that's how God created you. Man, we need to teach people how to flourish, not how to become you know, more attractive prospects for for dating and marriage right and so in the same way i think like our healing can be misdirected to where we start asking ourselves you know what is this person going to think and oh i need to get healed and i see black people all the time in mixed company not sit in where they are yeah yeah and not that you have to overshare but just be like man i'm not i'm not there right now you know i think what i'm gleaning from this part of the conversation is that Dealing with racial trauma, and that's what I would call it, a trauma, is a process. And anger is part of that process. Right, but I, I don't think it's a stop, though. That's why it's a process. Yeah, but I don't, I don't really think it's like, and I think when people think of the process as steps, right? The stages of grief or something like that. When I actually think there's some things that are undercurrents throughout the entirety of it. I think anger is going to be an undercurrent. And so 
I, I don't want people to get this idea that, well, I used to be angry and you know, one day I won't be one day. I won't be angry no more. Right. And it's like, no, that that's probably not how it's going to work. And especially due to the climate that we're in, it's kind of the blessing and the curse to be conscious. Now it's the blessing and the curse to see. And you almost wish you didn't have that sight and that knowledge and that ability to understand because now you can't unsee it. Right. And so it's just going to constantly be brought up to you. Right. So I think, um, it goes back to the quote, right? Is to, is to be in a state of nearly constant rage um, because there is this undercurrent of racism happening all the time. But I also think we get re-traumatized. Right. So we experience a trauma in a particular relationship or situation, and then we undergo, hopefully, a process of incorporating that experience into who we are, right? Mm-hmm. And that, like a scar... Is always going to be there, mm. but the open wound is healed. Right, right. But then you get re-traumatized. So it's not like these racial traumas happen once in your life. They're happening a lot. Yeah. And so that's where I think the feeling of constant <clears throat> rage comes in is because there's never a stop yeah. to where, okay, I'm not undergoing you know racial trauma anymore. Yeah, it, it, and I think that's why it's so important for us to be Black-centered. And I think it's why it's also so important for us not to make our activism and our justice and our protest um, in our movement about white people. Yep. I'm not going to give you the power that comes from me hating you. Mm. And I'm not going to give you the power that comes from me altering my life because you have imposed your oppressive systems upon it. I'm not going to give you that power. And that's what I think the real, and this is part of, you know, whether it's black theology or the black Christian perspective that's been so helpful for me is the reframing of certain things, right? The reframing of pain, the reframing of simplistic gospel narratives, Mm. the reframing of really basic things that we were taught to simplify, right? The, The reframing of forgiveness and, and dealing with reconciliation from a black Christian perspective is naturally different. Because I have to, every time I read the scripture, import the long narrative and history of, you know, 400 years on this continent. And then even before that of whiteness and colonialism and imperialism. So I have to import that into even my my breakdown of the text, because if I'm going to situate myself in it and the text is going to be incarnational for my life, then I have to truly think through what, what does this mean for a 67 year old grandmother who lived through the Jim Crow South. Right. You know, what does this mean for uh, an 85 year old black man who was a sharecropper? You know, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us who saw black bodies dead in the street? And I think when you, when you balance that, when you, when you actually incorporate that, that weight and that gravity, it helps you not to oversimplify the text, you know, and push the text on people kind of push it down their throats. Um, and use it as a weapon. And and yeah, go ahead and I'll, I'll say something else. So, I mean, I think um, in a way, the flip side of anger is forgiveness. And I think we have sometimes a very shallow theology of forgiveness. Is is it forgiveness? Is the flip side of anger forgiveness? I said um, in a way. <laughs> un- okay, un- unpack that. And then so, I'm sorry to cut you off, but especially especially on the guilt tripping part, right? Like black people are made to feel guilty or somehow they're wrong for feeling anger, 
And then on the flip side, we're also made to feel guilty or somehow wrong when we don't extend a form of forgiveness. When there's not the verbal, I forgive you, or the embrace. So um, folks will probably remember uh, Botham Jean, who was murdered in his own apartment. And then his brother at the sentencing trial for the woman who killed him, Amber Geiger, um, said, I forgive you. And then in the middle of the courtroom, in front of all the cameras, he embraced her. You know, there were tears. It was this, it was this really poignant and emotional moment. Mm-hmm. And it was so telling to me how people responded to that moment. And I actually wrote an article in the Washington Post. It was one of the most read because it was so controversial about this topic of forgiveness. And mm-hmm. I said, basically, that white people shouldn't presume or assume black forgiveness. Um, particularly this expression that was shown in the courtroom, right? Like, uh, it hadn't been that long since his brother was killed. Um, and not every black person is going to do that same thing, nor should they be expected to forgive on someone else's timetable. That's another way of being white centered in this whole process, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and I also think forgiveness, like you were saying, it's seeking health for my sake, right? right? It's it's not holding things against you so that I don't descend in bitterness. Right. And it also and it also it also makes a declaration that you're not ultimately what binds me. Yes. And I think that's also something so you disarm someone by showing them they don't have as much power as they think. Yep. So you're not gonna have the power for me to direct my healing towards you. Yes. Why? Because you're not the thing that ultimately binds me. And you're, you, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, are not the thing that is ultimately exerting the betrayal. Yeah. But it is the spirit hmm. of white supremacy. Hmm. It is the demonic spirit that has power over me and you. And so I am going to resist the spiritual wickedness, I'm going to resist a stronghold. I'm not resisting and fighting you in the flesh. I'm warring in the spirit against the stronghold, which is why I don't ascribe power to you that you don't have. Right. And so I think it's really important. Again, this is, this is my tradition. So. <laughs> but you see what I'm I saying? Mean, I, mean, like- I, want, I just, I feel you. I want to make sure that like in, in my view, people are still responsible for their choices. and actions, 100%. Right? No, so, no, no. 100%. I'm just saying yeah. that's not the ultimate. Okay. My friend who betrayed me is not my ultimate adversary. Yeah. And de- is not the one who exerts ultimate power over me. I'm not saying people are led along and carried along, you know, without agency. Yeah. 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 But ultimately you're, you're inserting yourself in a long line of stronghold. Yes. And perpetuating that stronghold, right? And talking about forgiveness is so complicated because of what we've made it to be. I think, I mean, this is why this is why Hollywood loves, um, you know, these these sort of white savior stories about mm-hmm. race. Sure. It's because there's always a black person or a group of black people who are willing to sort of forgive and in, in the cinematic telling of it, forget, right? So forgiving right. doesn't mean forgetting. And we say that all the time, but when we apply it to race, that means... And this is this is an unpopular opinion, right? But that means, no, I'm not just going to trust anyone, right? That doesn't right. mean I don't like you or I don't engage with you. It means that 
there's reason given our context it's trauma yeah <laughs> for for me not to be open with just anybody and and i think a lot of that as we talk about the limits of forgiveness are because people don't really know how to apologize say that like yes. people do yes. not know what it means to actually declare that you are sorry for Man. something like it's just it's you know i think it's a um it's a lost art <laughs> you know it's one of those things that you know it it you know and duquan has some really good stuff about this like on twitter i cannot i'll probably put the tweet down in the in the show notes but this whole concept and idea of of declaring the steps like very very like not saying if i hurt you but i hurt you and i was wrong and then really what can i do to to make you whole yeah saying something like i sorry i'm sorry you felt that way yeah i'm sorry you felt that way right and so you know and i think this roots itself in the idea that bitterness festers and persists we have a we have a responsibility to deal with our internal bitterness and resentment but bitterness festers when pride is mixed in mm. and so my pride of not owning where i was wrong will cause the offended to fester in unforgiveness mm. and frustration mm. because i just won't acknowledge right what is plainly sitting in front of me. Right. Because I I don't want to stoop low enough to say I was wrong. Yeah. And then ego now plays itself in. And there's so many, I think there's so many layers, but. Yeah. It, no one has people, ultimate power over your forgiveness, but it makes it harder to forgive when the person won't even exactly, apologize. Exactly. That's yeah. it. That's it. So yeah. it's, it festers it. And so it just, it's kind of, you know, where, where it builds up. You know, and it re-traumatizes the person to where they have to push away. But I think we have to learn how to take responsibility well. Hmm. I think we have to learn how to take, you know, how to apologize rightly. And I think, you know, as a pastor, I'm always thinking about this emotional health. Hmm. Why are you doing this? Like, why are you saying this? What's really behind Like, what is really behind you? Um, Lisa Fields, one of our friends, she had posted earlier this year, this emotional e like EQ uh-huh. like ring, which was super helpful, which is like you say, oh, I'm in my feelings. But what is that? And it says, you know, I'm mad. But what's behind that? I feel betrayed. Mm. What's behind that? Um, I feel unloved. You know, it's yeah. like, so you're like getting deeper, you're and getting deeper. deeper and deeper. And it's just giving you language yes. to identify how you're really feeling. I think emotional health, it depends on us getting in rooms and dealing with deep trauma and wounds and us really leaning into safe spaces where we can vent, where we can be honest so that we can confront what's in us, what's underlying in us, what's deep in us for our own health. Because what tends to happen is when I'm frustrated with a person online, who who gets the brunt of that? The person online? No, my family. Mm. So now my bitterness and my frustration and my anger that that you've thrown into my life and that I've allowed you to exercise power. And that's why block and mute buttons are, are from heaven <laughs> that I've allowed you to exert in my life because I just won't block and mute you for my health and for yours. Now that is taken out on my kids that is taken out on my wife. And now I feel like uh, you know, it's what's wrong with you. And it's, it's not them. 
it's this other situation that I won't confront, yeah. right? So yeah. what's in us? And so that's when we have to do the very basic discipleship work of what does it look like to have a healthy soul? Yeah, yeah. What does it look like to have silence and solitude and observe Sabbath and confession? Like, what does it look like to actually be in the presence of God and deal with it? What does it look like for us to not just have Jesus and the spiritual disciplines, but a therapist? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like so good. it's just very basic stuff, which is all about having a healthy soul. Yeah. And, and no one's going to sit. I'll just say this. No one's going to sustain a movement with an unhealthy soul. So <laughs> just drop just, that. Just, in just letting you know, let you think about it. And I'll just say this because uh, I think it's important that we are prepared to feel anger when we're exposed to a new trauma. Wow. Hmm. So, you know, just by way of practical advice, when you experience a new trauma personally, when you see a new trauma in the news or the headlines, when you read about an old trauma historically, I think we should be mentally prepared for the emotions that are to come. And I think Hmm. for me, that helps me understand what's happening, right? Like it's the meta analysis. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm feeling it, but let me let me sort of take a step back and get a perspective on not just what I'm feeling, but why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, yeah. this is I just read so another story about somebody who looks like me getting brutalized. Now I'm feeling sadness. Now mm-hmm. I'm feeling anger. Now I have, you know, bitterness toward you know, white people or whoever yeah. I blame. Uh, okay, but I understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. I understand it's because I just got this new trauma or this new information. Right, and to right. me, that's just like a mental check of, you know, I think sometimes we are sort of inexplicably sad, inexplicably sure. angry. Sure. And sometimes what we need to realize is I've just been exposed to a new trauma. Yeah. And this is what happens. And and it's it, hmm. it's it is what it is. The movement needs mental health experts. I'm telling you, the movement look, needs emotional health experts. You want to talk about racial justice and systemic change? We need to apply the finances, the creativity, and the energy to create a pipeline of mental health therapists of color. You've all, you've also mentioned this whole idea of like actually paying for mental health counseling for yes. people of color. Yeah. Man, I appreciate you. I'm praying for you. Like I need to deal with my trauma. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Like if you're a Christian <laughs> yeah. organization, this is part of healthcare almost, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. it is healthcare, but in the sense of, can we include this in packages for people? Right. Uh, right. It is dangerous. It is mentally and spiritually dangerous to bring on a person of color solo <laughs> into a predominantly white environment. Wow. I mean, that's a whole other, you oh, know, man. topic and podcast, but 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 that is trauma waiting to happen. And how can you be proactive about that? Yeah. And then I think also talking honestly about the the nature of why we don't compensate black people according to their the trauma that they've experienced and then that they have to re-enter whenever they're doing these talks about thank you <laughs> come talk to us about <laughs> thank you for come that. talk to us about the n-word yeah. that you were called one time and i'm like great and it's like well we're we're paying you standard rate 
And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, and it's not, it's not because number one, I'm leaving my family, you know, number one, I'm leaving, you know, my responsibilities to be with you and I'm going to serve you well. And people who know me know I do it for free, but at the same time, I'm going to reopen all these wounds, refill everything that Mm -hmm. I felt in that moment and subsequently, and then you're going to be like, wow, thanks. Right. (laughs) Or, or so, so being real honest when i really do struggle with bitterness and and an anger that threatens to be destructive is right after the talk or right after the sermon somebody comes up with a question or a comment that completely invalidates your experience like yeah. for me in that moment that's when i'm ready to throw hands and <laughs> i need to step back and i've taken to saying that if a host invites me to speak somewhere, you need to stay right by me, like at right. my shoulder right. to be a buffer. Um, one, because that's when people like to attack, right? Some people right. like to stand up in front of the group and attack. A lot of others like to wait in the line and get you, you know, somewhat one-on-one. Yeah, assassins, And man. then pull out the dagger, right? Yeah. And so I'm like, you need to be right there for them, but you also need to be right there for me. I need to have some way to extricate myself from a situation where I might do something I regret. Yeah. Or, or, or I mean, you know, it just adds, you know, you're vulnerable. Like, oh, you big know, time. You, you're empty and then you're, you're out there. And then right after it, someone starts to stab you, you yeah. know, metaphorically. Like I just gave all my, my all to you, exposed myself and my experience and my pain and my trauma to you. And well, now- Ben Shapiro says, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what? Oh, is man. society actually still racist or is this just a matter of laziness yeah. and personal responsibility? Yeah, so anyway. We've heard it all. We've heard <laughs> it all. People, you know, and that's something we should establish too. If anybody's like, hate listening to the podcast, we've heard your objection. <laughs> so I just want to tell you, you're not going to get us in a moment where we haven't heard something it's like well read this article from so-and-so we've probably we've read a version of that article before um nothing new under the sun so don't think you know don't run up like you go give us the the silver bullet you trying to if if you're hateless and and you comment you're trying to build a platform off of Oh yeah, we need to talk about platform building as well at a certain point. Yeah, all y'all who are building platforms off of responding, summarizing black thought. Yeah, while not having the range to actually cover it. Anyway, (laughs) we are. (laughs) Thank you all for listening (laughs) to this podcast. (laughs) But we're gonna come back with everybody's favorite segment: three questions with Jamar and Tyler. Stay tuned. everybody this is tyler listen past the mic would not be here we would not be who we are if not for the support of each one of you our listeners so we thank you we appreciate you but we also want to offer each of you the chance to help this show to keep going and growing by heading over to itunes right now and writing us a review for this podcast just saying a few words of how this show is encouraging or inspiring you it helps ptm greatly and it doesn't cost you a dime to do it. Now, that being said, if you do have the funds to support the show at any time, we encourage you to head over to patreon.com forward slash pass the mic to learn more about how your dollars can help fuel the growth of this podcast. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash pass the mic. (laughs) 
And we're back here for everybody's favorite segment, Three Questions with Jamar and Tyler. For those of you who don't know, we ask each other three questions that the other person does not know to get to know them better and for you to get to know us better as well. Jamar, I'll give you the first question this time. Oakley dokely. What is the most edge-of-your-seat sporting event you've ever seen? The most edge-of-my-seat, like, what that I've seen live? No, it could be a, on a show. TV. Oh, like on TV? Yeah. Ooh, man, that's tough. That's, like, impossible because I'm just such a sports watcher. I don't know if I could really <laughs> – I don't know if I could even really pick one. I would say definitely – um. Man, definitely 2001 Rams Patriots Super Bowl. Wow. Um, I was a huge Rams fan. Okay. And the Patriots upset them. And the Rams were heavily favored. And that was Tom Brady's first Super Bowl. And it was like the Rams had come back and scored to tie the game in the fourth quarter. And I think it was Ricky Prohl had caught a touchdown pass. And then everybody thought that the Patriots going to play for overtime and they threw this long pass and got in field goal range, end up kicking the game winning field goal to wow. win. And I remember I was so like, oh, my goodness, because, you know, there's, it's the comeback, you know, they're going to do it. Um, also, man, game seven of it's a painful one, but game seven of the 2016 NBA finals. Yes. Goodness um, gracious. Probably. Yeah, definitely. You know, the game of the decade, you know. There were a couple of games of the decade in that one. Game six in the previous series with OKC mm-hmm. and Golden State. But game seven, I mean, you you can't hit on LeBron, Kyrie. I mean, they did it. So that would probably be be up there too. That's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> this is a funny one. What songs would be played on a loop in hell for you? What? <laughs> That's hilarious. Um I'm not saying you're going there. You're going, yeah. okay, thank <laughs> you're going you. to the good place. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, you know what? It was uh, uh, Montel Jordan, This Is How We Do It. What? Not because I don't like the song, but because every time I hear it, it gets stuck in my head. It's stuck in my head now. And I'm mad that you asked that question. But like. I don't want it to play on repeat constantly, but the hook just... This is how we do it. just like, ah, and then you can't help but play it in your mind. So. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's so good. All right, number two for me. Um, I think I know what you're going to say, but our listeners need to know. Most memorable experience of 2019 for you. Oh, my son being born. <laughs> of course. Yes. Yes. I can't I can't get past that one, man. I yeah, yeah that's let me do number two. What's second it. most experience, memorable? Ooh man. I can't I actually probably be Joy and Justice, man. Like I think Joy and Justice was that wow. encouraging. That's dope. Yeah. Good. Uh number two, uh this kind of open ended one, but what's your idea of a great day? Man, oh, a great day for me is Waking up whenever my body tells me it's time to wake up. Yeah. Not according to an alarm, um, not according to a schedule. It is a simple breakfast, probably my favorite breakfast. My most routine breakfast is bacon and eggs. But on a special day, hash browns and pancakes with all those carbs. Um, Wow. And then uh, I want to grill outside on a warm day that's not sweltering. Um. 
And that man going in. I want to watch a couple of mindless shows yeah. and veg out in front of the TV. Okay. I want to play with my kid, jump on a trampoline or something outside, yeah, something yeah, active. Yeah. I want to have, I want to put the kid to bed and have like an hour with my wife where we're just doing whatever, just wow. chilling, talking. And then I want to go to bed having read a chapter or two of either a biography or a science fiction book. Man, that's so specific. You I probably thought like. about this. I yeah, know about leisure. Yeah. I like leisure. That's what's up. Okay. All right. Number three for me. One number three for you. Um, if you were to write a book solo, what's the subject of your first book? Man, I ain't got nothing to say yet. I don't know, man. Uh man, people are asking me this because now they, they want me to write something. Yup. Um <laughs> Well, when you say you don't have anything to say yet, there's probably a topic you're thinking, oh, I need more time and more experience. But what's that topic? Hmm. Well, so I have thought about writing like a uh, urban youth ministry book. Mm. I've thought, mm. thought about writing that. The Toward a Prophetic Youth Ministry by Fernando Arzola was really um, formative and inspirational for me. And it helped me kind of demystify what youth ministry can look like in a black church context. I actually talked about this at LDR uh, a few years yeah, back. Yeah, you did. Uh, which you can download fun. the talk. I think so, yeah. But, uh, you know, prophetic encouragement, that type of thing. Um, but really would have something to do with it would actually like the book I really want to write. All right. Speak on it. It's kind of like the, what doesn't kill you make you makes you blacker type book. (laughs) The, uh, Damon Young style. Yep. Yep. Like a collection of essays and a collection of reflections. I think I would really enjoy. And, you know, obviously anything related to black church, black preaching, I think, um, being a son being a son of the black church and being a son of black of a black preacher, I think would be a really interesting uh, take. But I, you know, I don't know if anybody wants the to read black preacher's that. kid. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I, I would, I would probably, yeah. You know, I'll probably write that. But I mean, right now, I haven't. My philosophy on writing a book is well for myself. I should say my philosophy on writing a book is um, I should write a book when there's one subject and topic I can't stop thinking about. Yeah. Yep. Like when I can't stop thinking about it and when it like literally overcomes me to where I can't not write this book, yep. that's when I need to write a book. And I haven't, that's why I say I don't, I don't have anything yet. It's good. Cause I'm just thinking about all these other things. Okay. Last one for you. What's the silliest thing that you're pretty good at? Oh, snap. Um, silliest thing I'm pretty good at. The first thing I thought was snapping. Yeah. You're a pretty um, good snapper though. Like low key. It's silly. Uh, I used to be a dope dancer. I don't know that that's silly. And I'm not good anymore. But I used to be. Like, clear what the you, dance floor good. What do you mean? Like, okay, like... Improvise. Breaking? Club dancing. Yes. Wow. Back in the day, I used to go to the club, not to drink, flirt. It was to dance. And we would... I would always have a partner. Different phases, different people. But we would always be able to like clear the dance floor and people form a circle around you and just watch you dance because it was wow, that good. Okay. We could shut it down. We could shut okay. it down. I need for somebody to some of y'all got some footage out there. Uh, I've, yeah, my last dance story is an infamous one. But <laughs> I may not get to the ears on the on the mic. Oh, 
I love it. I love it. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. We really enjoyed this episode. You can follow us at underscore Pastor Mike at the Witness BCC at Burns23 at Jamar Tisby. We will see you next time right here on Pass the Mic. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.